0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? morning? Before we get started, I just want to, uh, on behalf of my wife, Barbara, just thank, thank everybody for being here, but also wish you a very happy uh, Thanksgiving. Big week, big turkey day coming up, so uh, happy Thanksgiving. I want to uh, introduce somebody this morning. You probably haven't seen them. They're a new couple to the church. Uh, Justin and Christina Roberts, would you stand up so we could... Uh... <laughs> they were married yesterday. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I've got to tell this story. I, um, I'm relatively new to Florence and to Oregon. I've only uh, Barb and I have only been here 14 months, and uh, finding things a little bit different in Oregon than they were in California. I'm a, you know, an escapee from California. So, but six weeks ago I had back surgery, and uh, about 10 days after my surgery, uh, the neurosurgeon's office called and the the PA said, "Hey, Mike, uh, I'm supposed to take the staples out of your back, and I'll save you a trip into Eugene." I'll meet you in Florence and do it, do it there. And I go great. He goes, where do you want to meet? and I go, I don't know. I mean, my house would be really hard to find. So I, he said, well, when you get to Florence, call me. So about four o'clock in the afternoon, he calls me. I am in Florence, and I go, okay. Uh, do you know where the Dairy Queen is? Is yeah, I just passed it. I said, well, I'll meet you at the Dairy Queen. So pull into the, the Dairy Queen, there he is, and in the parking lot of the Dairy Queen, he lifted up my shirt, took out 14 staples out of my back, <laughs> did a quick exam, and said, you're good to go. And so <laughs> They don't do that in, in California. <laughs> but I got, I got to tell you, my little dog, it's just, it's just, my little dog Charlie, he's a little King Cavalier, kind of a miniature uh, Cocker Spaniel. Well, Charlie, when we had him neutered, they, they couldn't find one of his testicles. Poor guy. And so finally it was bothering him. We, we, we finally took him to the vet and had surgery. He had three days after I had my surgery, he had his surgery. You know. And so my wife calls uh, the church office down at, at our old church and puts, me, puts us both on the, on the prayer chain. And then a couple days later, I get a, a phone call from the, uh, one of my elders. And, they, and he says, Hey, I heard uh, Charlie's back surgery went really well and they found your testicle. And so. <laughs> it's been a fun six, <laughs> six weeks. Oh, gosh. I love Oregon. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, uh, I am not going to read the text this morning in the interest of time, so I'm going to start and let's start with a word of prayer and uh, ask God's blessing on His Word. Father, we just thank You so much for this uh, opportunity, this week that's coming up, uh, Thanksgiving, just being able to give You thanks. And Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we ask, Lord, that You would would feed us this morning. You'd feed us the milk, the meat, and the manna of Your Word. That we might understand maybe ourselves a little bit better, but most of all, that we would understand You. That we would know You better. And this time that we've spent here would be uh, profitable, not just for us, but for the kingdom so bless your word now in Jesus name amen well we've been going through the uh, book of Romans and uh, in a series called God revealed and Romans chapter 9 reveals the sovereignty of God now that word sovereignty is just a big word that means God is in control he's in control of everything He's in control of our lives. He's in control of the whole universe. There's nothing that He's not in control of. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything in the past, the present, and the future. And there's nothing that He doesn't know, and there's nothing that He cannot do. Now that brings up some questions. If all of that's true, why doesn't he stop wars and murders and abuse and all kinds of diseases and ailments and injustices and wrongs? That's a good question. I don't have the answers. You're going to have to ask Aaron and Mike about that. <laughs> <laughs> But Romans chapter 9 deals with the sovereignty of God, and it's the sovereignty and salvation. And that brings up enough questions. If God can do anything and everything, and he can, he can do everything and anything except four things. There's four things that God cannot do. Number one, God cannot sin, and he cannot tempt anybody to sin. Number two, God cannot learn because He knows everything. And so often we go, oh Lord, I'm so sorry, I've disappointed you. And he says, no you didn't. I knew you were going to do that. We don't disappoint the Lord. Number three, God cannot lie. Aren't you glad? Because that means He'll keep all of His promises. And number four, God cannot make you love Him. He cannot make you love Him. You have a free will. Now that free will is limited, but you have a free will. See, love is a choice. You choose to love somebody. I think that's why God put the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the center of the garden. Because it it, it, and the Satan too, and Satan the serpent too, because it therefore represented a choice. Adam and Eve had to make a choice: were they going to love and obey God, or were they going to give in to their own desires for the knowledge of good and evil? I also think that God has put us in a time domain. We don't live forever. It's 70, 80, maybe 90, if you're lucky, 100 years. But that forces us to make a choice for Jesus Christ. And so, there's some things that God cannot do. Now, where you draw the line between God's sovereignty and man's free will and responsibility, I really don't know. But both are true. It's what we call truth intention. Now in the last verses of Romans chapter eight, the Apostle Paul was flying high. He, he was saying, he, he said, "There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not life, not death. Nothing can separate us from life. he's high as a kite." And then in, in chapter 9, the very next chapter, he's at his lowest point. In Romans 9, verses 1 and 2, he says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continued grief in my heart. And you wonder, what happened? He's on the mountaintop here flying high about God and all of a sudden, now he's down in the, in the lowest of valleys in one verse. What a dramatic change of moods. What caused Paul to be so sorrowful? So sad? Paul is concerned about the salvation of his own people. The people of Israel. And obviously, Paul was a Jew. And he's deeply disturbed. And here his heart is is breaking. He's almost to the point of tears. And in verse 3, he says this, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israel. Paul is saying this. He's saying, you know what? I would be willing to go to hell if the Jewish people Israel could be saved. Can you imagine that? You know, I love you guys. But I don't think I could say that. I don't know if he could say it about me either. <laughs> now in these chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul has Israel in his heart. And this is one of the most controversial, debated sections of Scriptures. Scholars with great, great, better minds than mine have... <laughs> studied and debated this for years and years and I don't think anybody's come up with all the answers. So as Paul said to Timothy and I'll say to you, consider the things that I have to say and the Lord give you understanding. I want us to look at these verses not so much of what they say about Israel but what they say about the nature and character of God and our relationship to God. We wanted to look at what it tells us about what God is like. The central theme of this is God's plan for the Jews, but it illustrates and demonstrates His character. Now, an overview of the three chapters... In chapter 9, we have Israel's past. In chapter 10, we have Israel's presence. What's happening in Israel today, right now. In chapter 11, we have Israel's future. What's going to happen to them. And we learn in these three chapters, we're going to learn three aspects of God's nature. In Romans chapter 9, we learn about the sovereignty of God. Why He chose Israel above all the other nations to be His people. The sovereignty of God. He has the right to choose as He pleases. In Romans chapter 10, we're going we're to learn about the fairness of God, that God gives everyone an opportunity to be saved. And in Romans 11, we'll see the faithfulness of God. So we're going to look at the sovereignty of God as demonstrated by His relationship to the people of Israel. And I want us to look at what does it mean To be the chosen people. On what basis did did God choose Israel? I think some of these things are points that we can apply to our own lives on a regular basis. So, how were the Jews God's chosen people? The Bible says that God chose the, the Jews, the people of Israel, as a nation and set it apart from every other nation in the world. Why and how? And what difference did it make? How did it make Israel special? In verses 4, 5, and 6, in your Bibles, if you want to look, we have some ways that Israel was different. And Paul lists eight different privileges that made Israel different from every other nation. These privileges were given to them by God. Number 1, verse 4, the people of Israel's Theirs was the adoptions of God. God said specifically about the nation of Israel, they are going to be my people. And they're going to be different from every other race that I've created. Number two, they had the divine glory. It's the kabod of God. It's the Shekinah of God. Remember the the story of the the children of Israel when they were uh, wandering in the wilderness. They were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. That was the Shekinah, the kabod of God that represented the presence of God among the people of Israel. Remember when Solomon dedicated there in Chronicles, he he dedicated the temple. And the, the Shekinah of God came and the heaviness, the weightiness of God came into that temple. And it was so heavy that the priests couldn't even stand. They fell on their faces. God gave that. <coughs> that glory to the, to the children of Israel. Theirs were the covenants. Theirs were the agree- those were the agreements that God made with Abraham, J- Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. All those things that God had committed Himself to do for the nation. And He will fulfill every one of them. They were given the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the Word of God was given to the world through the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. They were given the temple worship. God specifically spells out in detail how people were to worship Him, the offerings and the sacrifices that they were to make. They were given the patriarchs, the great leaders, Of Israel. Again, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, or Isaac, Jacob, (laughs) Moses, and David. But the greatest blessing of all is in Romans chapter 9, verse 5. I want you to circle this. If you have your Bible, circle it, underline it, put stars on it, because this is a tremendous verse that shows the deity of Jesus Christ. But it says in Romans 9.5, "...from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who was over all the eternally blessed God. Amen." I don't see how you can say that any plainer. Jesus is God. So the greatest blessing that was given to the Jews were they were the chosen people from which the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, was to come. Jesus was a Jew. So, so the Jews, when they were, give, were, were chosen by God, got all these advantages. They were given tremendous advantages and blessings. Why? Why were they given all of these things? Why didn't God just kind of spread it out among all the nations of the world? Why did God choose to do all these things just through the Jews? Did He do it so He could play favorites? No, I don't think so. So that they they could brag about their position? No. Why did God choose the Jews? In Genesis chapter 12, the very first covenant that God made with Abraham, this is when God called Abraham to leave his hometown of Ur. One thing you have to remember about Abraham, we always think Abraham's this righteous man and this great guy. Well, he was a great man. But Abraham was an idol-worshipping Gentile out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And God chose him, this idol-worshipper, to father the whole nation of Israel. In Genesis 12, verse 1, he says, Get out of your country, God says to Abraham, from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God said I'm not just going to bless you but I'm going to make you a blessing. God said I'm going to bless Israel Not just so they could sit around and say, you know, what lucky folks we are. You know, we got all this stuff going on for us. But I'm going to bless Israel and I'm going to give them all things so that they can be a blessing to the whole world. You know, he does that for us. You know, you've heard count your blessings. God blesses you. He's blessed me. God blesses you. But He doesn't just bless you so you can lavish it upon yourself. He does it so that you can be a blessing. So you can bless other people. And that's the reason He does it. Don't forget that. God gave the Word of God to Israel. They were to be the missionaries to all the rest of the world. They were to spread the Gospel. They were to spread the news about God to the rest of the world. But they failed miserably. When they received all these great things, rather than going, let's, saying, let's go out and share it, I can remember when I first got saved. I didn't know anything about God, but I wanted to go share. I to go share about Jesus. You I didn't know any. I didn't even know the Lord's prayer. I didn't know anything. But they were to go out and share it, but they didn't. They sat around. And they said, "Oh, well, aren't we great?" And they held on to that news and they kept it to themselves and they didn't spread the word. They kind of went, well, we got it. You don't. Tough luck. And they actually missed the point. Later, God gave that message to us, the church. We're to spread the news. We're to make redemptive relationships with other people that you come in contact. He puts people with you and around you. So that you can tell them about Jesus Christ and your relationship with God. Interesting. God chose chose Abraham, the Jewish people. Jesus said this. He says, you have not chosen me, but I chose you and ordained you that you might bring forth lasting fruit. We are chosen by Jesus Himself for a purpose, for a reason. The same reason He chose the Jewish people. So God sent the Messiah through the nation of Israel and they rejected Him. And then He gave it to the church. But God knew that. In Galatians 3.8, it says the Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the Gospel in advance to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. God told Abraham in the beginning, at the very start, I'm doing this so that you might be a blessing. So on what basis... (laughs) On what basis did God choose Israel? Why did he pay, pick the nation of Israel? Did he pick it because they were bigger? They were more intelligent? Better looking? I don't think so. But Paul gives us four principles on why he chose the nation of Israel. And these four principles apply to to your salvation and my salvation. Number 1, salvation is based on grace, not race. In verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who were descendants from Israel were Israel, nor because nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. Paul is saying that just because you have Jewish parents, it doesn't automatically make you a child of God. It wasn't based on their physical dependency. Salvation is based on grace, not race. It's it's not based on who your parents are. It's not based on what your ancestry is, or who your family tree can be traced back to. In verse 7, it says, not because they are the descendants. Aren't you glad that salvation wasn't based on race, but because of grace? In Romans 2.28, and and you'll find that all through the book of Romans. We've already seen it in Romans 2.28. It says, A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, he is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. What makes you a child of God? Not the rituals and the, 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 the rules and regulations that you keep. What makes you a child of God is having a relationship to God through Jesus Christ. It's about being born again and being born into His family. See, racial Israel was composed of believing, pardon me, was composed of believing Jews and non believing Jews. Whether you believed or not, you were part of the race. But real Israel, Paul says, was believing Jews, we call Messianic Jews today, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. That's the church. God God recognizes three classes of people in the world. There's Jews, Gentiles, and the church. That's it. So what saves you is not your family. You don't inherit salvation. It doesn't come through your genes. I'm not talking about your Levi's. (laughs) But every generation, one must come to know Christ on their own. Number two, salvation is based on God's promise, not our preference. In verses 8 and 9, it says, In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, he's giving a, an illustration that, that dates back to Abraham and to Sarah in, in Genesis chapter 21. Abraham had two sons in the beginning. The first was Ishmael. Ishmael came through Hagar. Remember, Sarah couldn't get pregnant, so she said to Abraham, Hey, take my handmaid, Hagar. Have a child with with." with her. And he did. (laughs) And he called his name Ishmael. Now Ishmael was 13 years older than Isaac. And Abraham, there is no doubt as you look at the scriptures, Abraham loved Ishmael. But Isaac was the miracle baby. And so when Abraham was old and God said I'm going to make you the father of great nation, Abraham said Ishmael? And God says no. That might be your preference. But mine is Isaac. He's the child of promise. He's the miracle boy. God said It's not by your preference. Because Ishmael, uh, Isaac was, a, was the child of the promise. Interesting, Genesis 22, when we went through that, God said to Abraham, He said, Take thy son, thy only son, Isaac. Take him up to Mount Moriah there and offer him as a sacrifice. Take thy son, thy only son, he didn't even recognize Ishmael. Ishmael is a picture, a type of the flesh. He didn't even recognize it. And you know, that gives me great great hope and pleasure because God doesn't recognize my flesh. He doesn't remember my flesh. I'm in the flesh so often. He recognizes the things that I do in the Spirit. Number three, Paul says salvation is based on God's providence, not our performance. In verses 10 to 13, Paul gives another illustration, and this one is of of Jacob and Esau. In verse 10, it says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children... For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, two, two twin Brothers, well, Esau was born first; Jacob, second. So Esau was the firstborn son, but God picked Jacob even before he was born. Not because he was better; because he he picked him before he was born. He hadn't done anything. God said, "I'm going to make Jacob the father of the nation of Israel," not Esau there could only be one father and God chose Jacob and God chose him before he was born to point out that he doesn't save anybody on the basis of their works or their performance not on what they do God made the choice simply on the basis of his own providence his own decision uh, it, it says they're not by works. We all know Ephesians chapter two verses eight and nine. "For by grace you have been saved through faith." And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works should any man boast. Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we all got there because of what we did? We'd all be sitting around bragging. <laughs> you know what I did?. <laughs> you know? Heaven would be hell. (laughs) God selected a guy even before he was born just to prove that it's not based on earning. It's not on works. It's not something that you deserve. In verse 13, it says, Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. That's kind of a strange verse, isn't it? A lot of people have a real problem right here. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. What does he mean? He's saying that even before they were born. How how could God do that? The is really simple. He's sovereign. He can do anything he wants. And it's like, where does the gorilla sleep in the jungle at night? Anywhere he wants? You know, I mean, we could get into God's foreknowledge and all of this, and that all plays in it some way, but it's because he's sovereign. You know, somebody said, I am sure glad God chose me before I was born because if he would have waited until after I was born, he never would have chose me. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from England in the 1850s, he, he says, you know, I don't have a problem with God hating Esau. My mystery, my problem is how could he love Jacob because he was a scoundrel? The question is, did God choose correctly? If we go through the book of Genesis, we saw that Esau wasn't interested in spiritual things. He was attracted to carnal things. Yes, God chose correctly, He always does. Number four, salvation is based on God's mercy, not our merit. And to illustrate this, He uses another Old Testament uh, example of Pharaoh and Moses. Let me Okay, we're in trouble. <laughs> Part 2 comes next week. Let me explain something to you and you probably know this but everything in the Old Testament for every principle in the New Testament you'll find an illustration, a picture in the Old Testament. So when you look at when you look at something in the New Testament, a principle Then you go, okay, how is that illustrated in the Old Testament? And that's what Paul is doing here. He's illustrating these principles from the Old Testament. Okay, number four salvation is based on God's mercy, not our merit. Look at verse 15, Romans 9. For God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It does not therefore depend on a man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wants "...to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden." Salvation does not come or depend on man's effort or performance. It depends on God's mercy. If it weren't God's mercy, none of us would make it. If you had to be good enough to get to God, you would have to be as good as God... And nobody's perfect. He's the only perfect one. In Titus 3 5, it says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. And he's saying, Consider Moses and Pharaoh. Why did God choose to use Moses? God says he did it out of his mercy. Moses was a murderer. God says, I still am going to use him because I'm merciful. Then he talks about Pharaoh. Pharaoh was unknowingly part of God's plan. Even though he didn't want to cooperate, he still had a part in displaying the greatness of God. Now, the normal reaction to all of this, when we understand that God's salvation is based on God's mercy, not our merit, it's really His work. His choice. The natural reaction to this is to say, well, if everything depends on God and what He does, what happens to man's responsibility? How can I be accountable If God is pulling all the strings and I don't have anything to do with my salvation. How can God blame me for anything if He's pulling all the strings? And we say it's not fair, God, not to let me do something in my salvation. I need to have a choice. Paul anticipates that question in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? If God God has everything all planned out, then we're nothing but but pawns and puppets. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Just like a potter can take a a, a, a clump of clay and he can make anything out of it that he wants to make. It's his choice. He has the right. He can, make, he can take a clump of, of clay and he can make a beautiful vase or, or jar or whatever. Or he can take a clump, clump of clay and make a spittoon out of it. <laughs> Some of us may feel like that. God is our Creator, and He has the right to shape our lives. God has the right to shape history. God has the right to cause things to happen and cause circumstances. Who am I to question God? And I, I'll just say this. I shared my testimony with the men's breakfast a couple weeks ago. I came to Christ because of the death of a three-year-old son and all these questions came to mind but see I see a message of hope in this also if we mess up our lives which most of us at one point have if we mess up our lives the master potter has the ability to take that marred vessel and reshape it into anything that he wants to he can turn bad into good. He can turn it around. Now, Paul gets into some really deep uh, speculation here. And as I said, this is one of the most debated portions of Scripture. And I, <laughs> I'm trying to make it simple because I'm a very simple man. But it's full of all kinds of things that theologians have discussed for centuries. Verse 22 to 24, Paul speculates. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What if God wanted to create people to be criminals? Does he have the right to do that? Paul's making suppositions here. He's basically saying, doesn't God have the right to be God and do whatever he wants to do? Everything we have belongs to him, everything that we are belongs to him. And it says this it's interesting. Those prepared for destruction. Now technically in the Greek, what that really means is that they prepared themselves for destruction. Now some people take this passage and and in essence they say, God plans out every single detail in the world and there's no freedom or responsibility. Therefore I have no choice. It was inevitable. I call that fatalism. That's not Christian theology. It's not fatalistic. That's more Islamic theology. God gives us a limited free will. It's not fatalism. But see, the natural extension of this is to make God the author of all sin. Then you can blame God. Well, the reason that I killed my mother in law was because you made me that way, God. It's your fault. God is not the author of evil. I think this is almost too heavy for us to understand. And Romans 9 raises more questions than answers. But I think I can summarize what Paul is trying to say in Romans chapter 9 in a very short phrase. Let God be God. He has the right to do whatever He wants. He's not on trial. And we're not going to figure it all out. If God was small enough for me to figure it out, then God wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. I think a good commentary on Romans chapter 9 is Isaiah 55. Verses 8 and 9. Do we have that? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There's some things we're just not going to understand about God's plan. They're on a different level. Our knowledge is finite. His knowledge is infinite. And we don't see the total picture like He does. Now, in my mind, I cannot reconcile how God is ultimately sovereign in life, yet I also have a responsibility in life and that God is going to hold me accountable. I can't reconcile those two. But the Bible clearly teaches those things. Both of them. They're both true. God does have sovereignty over all of our lives. He knew who would be saved even before they were born. But the Scripture also teaches teaches that I have a choice and that I have some freedom. It's limited, but I'll be held accountable for the choices that I make in my life. The Bible teaches both truth and tension. Let me just read the rest and we'll finish here. Verse 25-26, I will call them my people. Uh, he, Paul begins to quote two uh, Old Testament prophets, Hosea and, and Isaiah. And he says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in that very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, that they will be called the sons of the living God. And then in verse 27, concerning Israel, through the number of Israelites, uh, though the number of Israelites are like sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence with speed and finality, just as Isaiah said Unless the Lord Almighty had left us as descendants, we would all become like Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, we would all be wiped out. God gave an opportunity to Israel, they rejected it. But some, a remnant, responded to the me- message of grace. And I'll just close by saying this. Well, last verse. <laughs> what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. A righteousness that is by faith. They don't work for it. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it was by works, they stumble over the stumbling stone. If you go to Israel today and you talk to an Orthodox Jew and you ask them, "What what are you doing about your sin? What are you doing about your spirituality? How are you going to make it with God? They'll tell you, we're going to depend on our works, our good deeds, and we're going to hope that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. Yet, they desperately want to rebuild their temple because they know that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And as desperate as they want to rebuild the temple, they still stumble over this stumbling stone which is Jesus Christ. Now we're either going to stumble over Jesus or we're going to stand on Jesus. And what you choose to do determines your future. Will the worship team come up? We'll pray and we'll take communion. As they're coming up and as the elements come, I want you to just hold them during the song. And I am apologize for the time. Hold them during the song. And when the Lord prompts you, then partake. And remember, that little piece of bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ that was broken for you. God had to, had to provide a way. to to reconcile His love with His justice. And that's reconciled at the cross of Jesus Christ. So remember what that means. Without that cross, without that piece of bread, and without that cup, there's no way you could come into God's presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. (laughs) Lord, give us understanding. Lord, the questions that we have. Give us answers Make us diligent to search out those things that we might glorify You even more than we do now. In Jesus' name, amen.